Welcome to Mommy Diary, the podcast. I'm your host, Angela Kim. I'm a creative, lifestyle blogger, and mom of four. This podcast is all about honest stories of motherhood and real conversations with real mothers just like you. Unlike my Instagram account, not everything will be beautiful. I promise to be vulnerable and share stories of all the struggles and the incredible moments we all share as women and mothers. So do me a favor and screenshot this episode, add it to your IG stories, then tag me at Mommy Diary. I'd love to feature you on my Insta stories. We're all in this together, mamas. Let's dive into the show. Hi guys, thank you so much for coming back on Mommy Diary, the podcast. It's really great to have you guys back. It's already September, which is insane. Like 2020 is just flying by. And today I have a very interesting guest for you. Her name is Sharon Hedgen Lee, Professor Lee from NYU, who specializes in Asian American studies. And she's also, interestingly, a personal friend of my family. She, she grew up with my husband, actually, and I've known her for a long time. And I spend every Christmas with her, with all our family. So it's so much fun. But professionally, Professor Lee has so much to offer to the Asian American community. She is a very influential voice for Asian American mothers, for women, for the community. And I invited her because there were a lot of things that I was curious about, about her personal professional journey into motherhood, into her role at, at NYU. And welcome. Thank you for inviting me, Angela. So before we begin, we're in the middle of this pandemic, and she's been working from home for many months. And before we started, we were talking about just what a weird time this is for working mothers. And I think Professor Lee is like the epitome of the working mother. She's a professor. She's a mom of two children, two young children, and she's just balancing everything from home right now. So I want to, I would love to hear about what that looks like today. I'm sure your answer looks a little different now than it was last year. So if you can just give us a background of, you know, who you are, your personal journey into motherhood and what you do, how you became a professor and just the book that you're working on today. So I feel like a a great way to start this is to be really real. Angela and I are doing this podcast interview. It's evening. We're both like siphoned away from our children, hold up, you know, in our pajamas, just trying to catch an hour before one of our kids come running inside the next room, right? And I think every mom, no matter what, you know, what profession you're in, what you do right now with this pandemic can totally relate to that. So, I, you know, it's like setting the stage that that's how we're working today. So as you said, I'm a professor at New York University, um, but right now I'm in California, at my parents' house because mid-March pandemic happened and we could think of no better place to come than to bring our our kids to to family. Uh, We had no idea what the the future was going to hold, but we knew that being near family was probably our best bet. No idea that it would be September and we would still be here. No idea that, you know, that this would probably be the case for the foreseeable future. So 
I feel luckier than most because my parents, you know, are here. They can take the kids for at least a few hours every day. But I think one of the things that the pandemic has done is, is it's really sort of illuminated what shabby infrastructures all of us had in terms of our work-life uh, balance, right? Especially working moms, right? We relied so heavily on school and, and really championed efficiency, productivity over everything else, right? And now that those things, you know, that the infrastructures are just gone and, and our work life and our mom life and our home life has all just become this one jumbled mess. I think it's much easier for us to see how, you know, how, how wobbly the whole thing was to begin with, right? So, you know, people are coping in so many different ways. Like I said, I'm really, I feel really grateful to have, you know, my parents' support. And we're just sort of like going back old school, doing this intergenerational living thing that, you know, you know, like my parents' generation live like that. Um, it's not for everybody, but it, it is one of the ways to sort of cope with this, this pandemic. So I find myself pulled up in my parents' house trying to work on a book called The Geopolitics of Beauty. Um, and it's something I've been working on for a really long time. It's really about beauty in, in South Korea, and particularly the sort of penchant for, for plastic surgery, which, you know, many of you who are listening have probably heard about the fact that South Korean women in particular go under the knife um, at the highest rates per capita globally. And really the premise of the book is really interested in thinking about not so much why that is, right? Like why Korean women want plastic surgery, but what that um, look or what the surgery sort of means, right? It, it, it's mentioned a lot in, in the U.S. media. And now with the popularity of K-pop, a lot of people are actually, and, and, and also K-beauty products, um, a lot of people who are non-Korean are sort of striving for this Korean look or Korean beauty, whether it's through cosmetics or cosmetic surgery themselves. So I'm kind of interested in um, the different meanings that Korean beauty takes on through cosmetic surgery, through pop culture, and through cosmetics today. Yeah, you know, what's really interesting right now is that have you heard of the foxy eye trend? Yeah, it's a new trend on social media. A lot of um, my beauty vlogger friends have been sharing this, feeling very um, just perplexed by it because they, a lot of them, you know, a lot of these Asian beauty vloggers were, they grew up in a white dominant, you know, very heavily white neighborhood. A lot of them have memories of being teased for their slanted eyes. And now a lot of people in this beauty vlogging, vlogging community, they are actually making their eyes look more slanted and foxy. But these are white women doing this. And it's now considered very like ideal beauty. And there are even people doing surgery. And I've actually come across some Instagram pages of plastic surgeons who are actually pushing for this very new trend, you know, this trendy set of eyes. And it was very just, you know, thought provoking. It really made me think, wow, like beauty changes. The standard of beauty is changing every generation. Like when we were growing up, we all wanted the big eyes, the big Western eyes, you know, double eyelid su surgery was like every girl, every Asian girl, at least Korean girl at my school, they go to South Korea during summer vacation and they come back with different eyes. It was very normal. 
when we're in like seventh and eighth grade, I think like 13, 14 years old is the time when, you know, a lot of the younger, I guess, teens get their eyes done with, you know, approval from their moms. Sometimes I think it's pushed upon them by their moms. Like their moms suggest that they do it because it just looks more natural was I think what a lot of, you know, our parents' generation thought. So my daughter's at that age right now, 13, 14, 7th, 8th grade. And I look at her and I don't know if I could ever recommend any type of plastic surgery. But the fact that that was very normal in my generation makes me realize as a mom now that a lot of us must have kind of internalized that or got this message that we're not enough like that our eyes aren't beautiful, that we need to change something about this. We have to surgically change it. And what a powerful message to receive at the age of 13 and 14, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's two really salient points in there. One is that, you know, when I started this research, I started with a really simple premise, right? And so much of what you said resonates with me. You know, we're similar in age. And everyone I knew would, like you said, sort of go away to Korea for a summer trip and come back, ta-da, refreshed, right? I mean, it was such a normal thing. But the way that it was talked about in the American mainstream media was that all these Asian American, particularly Koreans, you know, wanted to look white, right? And that to me was this little bit of a disconnect because I didn't know anybody in my community that was like, I want to go look white, right? I want to, you know, a a lot of people, of course, they wanted to change how they look, but it was like, I want to go look and I, you know, they would say like, emulate this like Korean actress, right? Or, or take on this look that is so popular in Korea. So that sort of disconnect to me was really interesting, right? What does it mean for white America to say that, Koreans just want to look white, but for Koreans themselves not to sort of have that explanation, then what is the explanation? And the big leap, I think, that has happened in the 10 years plus that I've been doing this research, my goodness, how long has it been, is that the conversation has shifted even again, right? Because now we're in a moment where Korean culture, Korean pop culture, Korean beauty is so popular that the conversation's not even is no longer about Asians or Koreans wanting to look white. It's really about non-Koreans wanting to look Korean, right? And so I'm really interested in that relationship between race and beauty and power, right? And how these conversations shift, but really it's about power, right? Korea, what it stands for and signifies and um, in relationship to white America or the U.S. And then the other thing, going back to the sort of the foxy eye conversation is that all of those uh, attempts at, at beauty, right, get narrated as wanting to look white. And yet here we have these white beauty vloggers who are trying to look Asian, right? And so, you know, we see this time and time again, where for white people, the ability to sort of adorn themselves or take on characteristics of people of color is seamless and unquestioned, right? And that's always the conundrum, right? And, you know, I got approached by a few journalists asking if I wanted to comment whether or not it's racist. Of course it's racist, right? It's absolutely racist when white, you know, anyone, actresses, singers, 
beauty vloggers are sort of emulating or trying on, right? Trying on the sort of like racial markers of another group, you know, that is white privilege because they can put it on and then they can take it off, right? And then it becomes this kind of costume. Whereas for people of color, you cannot take these things off, right? This makes up who we are and it makes up how we are are seen in society, how we're treated, how we are sort of interpolated and interpreted. So yeah, it's an interesting dichotomy in terms of how our beauty choices are both seen and then how others are able to sort of make themselves to look like us as well. So who gets to define what is beautiful in our culture, right? I think historically, it's been the the white culture, right? That defines what is beauty, what is not, what is acceptable, what isn't. So it's very interesting for me as a woman, as a mom, to see the different trends in beauty over time, how that changes and how that really shapes our young women today. Like if we go back to the girls we were, you know, when we're in um, middle school ages and we're around the same generation. So I think a lot of our listeners can relate to having double eyelid surgery was almost so accepted. Everyone got it done. Like if you didn't do it, you felt out of place. But like you said, I don't think it was because we're trying to look more white. I wonder what it was, right? I still wonder why is it that we wanted, you know, something that we didn't have that we weren't born with. And I think at the time, there was a lot of like westernization of beauty in Korea. What do scholars, you know, who studied this for 10 years, what have you guys found through your research and just observing the different trends and the cultures? Yeah, I mean, I think that one thing that people don't know is that the double eyelid surgery is actually made popular in South Korea after, right after the Korean War. Or I should say, after makes it sound like the Korean War is over, but after the armistice is signed, the U.S. military stays in South Korea and, of course, is still there today. But they launch a massive humanitarian uh, effort, right, sort of a, a PR effort with Koreans, right? And this involves passing out spam and candy. I mean, if you're Asian or Korean, you know, spam is, you know, we love spam. And this all comes back to this moment, right? You imagine people are starving from the war, they've barely eaten. And here, off the back of military trucks, they're throwing chocolates and candies and, and spam. And like my dad will talk about the first time he tasted a chocolate, right? And he can remember it. And all of that is, was, a, was a huge like campaign, right, to sort of, of course, to, to rebuild South Korea, but also to build relations between the U.S. military and South Koreans. In addition to that was reconstructive surgery because so many people have been injured in the war. Um, well, one of these surgeons was named Dr. Millard, and he actually decided to uh, also perform the double eyelid surgery to alleviate um, what he called Korean suspicious looking eyes, right? And so he first did this with his interpreter. Um, and there are pictures of, of, of the before and after in, in essays and medical journals that he's published. And then once it was quote unquote successful with his interpreter, he offered this surgery to other people. Now, of course, it, it, does, it doesn't need to be said. This was not a medical procedure. It was not necessary. It was not akin to any of the reconstructive surgery that was being offered by the U.S. military at the time. And so right then and there, you see that the double eyelid surgery has very racialized, very racist, right, 
very imperial origins in South Korea. It's not a neutral procedure. But in my work, I'm interested in how that meaning and power shifts over time, right? So that's the beginning of the double eyelid surgery. And then you fast forward, you know, 60, 70 years to today, where South Korea itself has such a global beauty industry, has a a pop culture industry, right? Korea's cosmetic and beauty industry has outpaced the shipbuilding industry, right? And, And so, you know, what I'm interested in is is not, it's not to say that the, the racist hierarchies in these looks become erased, but the meanings sort of shift over time. So now South Korea exports these K-pop videos, these K-dramas, these films that export a certain type of look in South Korea that most people will recognize as manufactured in some sense, right? Most actresses and idols have had surgery of some, to some degree, And then because of the popularity of of all of these cultural products, then you have other people, non-Koreans, coming to Korea to get plastic surgery to look Korean, right? So this procedure that started out, right, as a mimicking of whiteness in terms of alleviating these, quote-unquote, suspicious-looking eyes, now, right, is just as popular, maybe even more so. And, you know, some of Korea's leading industries but the desire is to look Korean, right? And so um, there is still a lot of power there. And, you know, the norm is set by whoever has the cultural hegemony, the cultural capital, the sort of like monopoly on culture at that moment. And that is never free of power because that also means geopolitical power. That means political power and influence, right? And so to me, that's what's really interesting about beauty is that it's never just about what we like or how we want to look. It's always tied to these national projects, transnational projects and geopolitical moments. So would you say that in a way, um, and I'm just using like layman's terms, just, you know, people for people outside of academia, would you say that the double eyelid surgery just starts from very like racist beliefs? And over time, it's transformed and now Koreans have kind of taken that and turned it into their own art form would I say you know their own you know they're very valuable capital for the country and they've taken some of that power back especially as they manufacture these idols these k-pop idols they're globally recognized and they are just so influential across the world as well as these k-dramas i don't know the exact numbers but i know the figures are huge right they're making a ton of money with just selling their art their music their standard of beauty their wardrobe i mean even clothing their um just everything that they're producing now is catering towards a global audience So is it safe to say that Korea has somewhat taken some of that power back? I think that's such a great question. I mean, I think, I think the way we can think about it is that power has been reconfigured in the sense that, you know, now we see a lot of capital and culture coming from Asia, right? People are terming this the Asian century. And, you know, in that sense, I think a lot of people are predicting and saying, you know, 
the U.S. as a global power, right, we're going to start to see that power descend and more power sort of uh, congregating in Asia. So in one sense, I think that you can say that there, it, that I think you said it, South Korea took some of that power back. But I think what's important to remember is that the U.S. has always been sort of involved in South Korea's industry and politics for the last 60 years, right? So South Korea, South Korea has really grown under the tutelage of the U.S., right, in, in sort of capitalist terms. The popularity of Hallyu or, or K-pop, I think, though, was really just unexpected in the sense of, you know, the way that social media has carried South Korean culture products to another level. You know, of course, we all think of BTS when I say that is the thing that has really sort of put it over the edge. But I think the thing to me that's important to think about, and I think you hit on this um, when you were talking about the young girls today and and who they emulate for beauty or how this kind of cycle of standards of beauty recycles, is that just asking the question, though, you know, if the standard of beauty comes from Korea, does it make it any less impossible or violent, right? I think when I was younger, I used to think the problem was that we just all emulated white beauty, right? And I do think that there is some relief and some joy in the fact that young women today have other places to look besides, you know, American mainstream pop culture for their models of beauty, right? Korean actresses and pop stars. But I do think an important question or an important sort of pressure point to put on Korea is, you know, are we still asking impossible things of our young women, right? Whether it's a white model or a Korean model, is it still an impossible sort of goal for our young people, specifically today in the age of social media? There's just so many like interesting uh, things to like unpack here. But so you as a Korean American woman, growing up in America from immigrant, hardworking immigrant parents, how did your personal experience shape your understanding? Because I'm sure I'm assuming that there must have been some, some things that happened or that you've learned or experienced over time that made you passionate about this particular topic and Asian Americanness. Yeah. So my story is I grew up, for the first part of my childhood in Chicago, Southside Chicago, in a predominantly black neighborhood. And then I moved to Southern California and ended up in um, Downey, you know, where it's predominantly Asians and Latinx folks, um, which is where I met um, your husband and became family friend cousins with them. And, and then even from there, my parents moved to an all-white neighborhood in Orange County, California. And so I tell that story because I really think that arc of having grown up in all these different spaces in different types of neighborhoods really sort of shaped who I would become later in terms of like having this understanding of what it is to grow up in all of these different kinds of racialized neighborhoods. But that said, I grew up, you know, my formative teenage years, I grew up in a pretty white neighborhood. 
And, you know, I was, I was definitely the model minority. I was captain of the cheerleaders and NHS president and all of those things. You know, I'm still going to my parents' Korean church on the weekends and doing all the things that I think a quote-unquote good Asian-American girl was supposed to do in the 90s. How, how did you become the captain of the cheerleading team in a very <laughs> white community? That's like goals right there, <laughs> 90s, 90s Korean-American goals. I would have only dreamed about being the captain. That was a huge deal back then. I was determined. I was always dancing. Ask anybody that, you know, you've heard. You've heard the family stories. And, but, you know, it's funny. I mean, those were some of the points of, of racism in my childhood, right? I I remember trying out, you know, you try out every single year. And one of the girls, my very quote unquote, good friend, right, didn't make it and I made it. And I, I literally heard her mom say, don't worry, honey, she only made it because she's the token, right? And so those were the moments that, you know, I think as a kid, you, you don't dwell on them you keep going, you maybe don't even know exactly what it means. But as an adult, I look back on that. And I'm like, wow, that was was really racist. Right? That was a really racist thing for her to say and a really terrible, uncompassionate thing for any mom to say in front of another kid. So I think, you know, when you ask what shaped my experiences, I, you know, really did shape me to have grown up that way and to always sort of feel like I was proving myself in one way or another. So that's why I think when I got to UC Berkeley and discovered ethnic studies, it was a really important moment for me because I discovered that there were all these histories of people of color, of Asian Americans in particular, that I had never learned about, right? And so it really sparked my interest to know that, you know, Asian Americans had this political history that I didn't know about, that we were more three-dimensional than the textbooks, right, had sort of allowed me to believe. And that was really when I found my passion, where I was like, I want to study this more, and I want to, you know, then impart this to young people like myself. So every year when I start teaching, and I see the students in my classes, I see myself, right, I see students who never learned any of this in in their classes, but are going to come out of mind, hopefully sort of knowing themselves better. And so in California, recently, there was a bill that passed um, making ethnic studies a requirement for Cal State students to graduate. And I think that is a huge, huge step in terms of, you know, the kinds of changes that we're seeing since the BLM uprisings in June, right? Like, one way that we can reverse or eradicate or shift the racial dynamics in this country is, is, you know, obviously has to take place first through education. And if young people don't know these histories, don't know the specificities of the histories, then we can't really change anything. So, you know, that to me is the power of ethnic studies. And I'm so gratified to see that California did the right thing in, in those terms. I never knew that. And that's like such an amazing change, so transformative for our community. And I was born in Korea. I'm 1.5 generation. My husband's second generation. You're second generation. Now our children are third generation, but it really saddens me when I think that their stories are still erased from history books. They don't learn about themselves at school. And I know right now with um, the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, a lot of schools and institutions and companies have been called out for their past very, 
you know, racist or just, you know, white, very white oriented narratives that they were pushing out there. And it really makes me wonder why things haven't really changed. Because I remember the 90s, right? The 1992, the LA riots. I remember that day clearly. My dad was working somewhere in LA and you know, like typical, like most immigrant parents, they had to work. My parents both had to work. So we were at this childcare place also um, by like a neighborhood pastor's family. I remember just watching TV, just watching the same scenes, horrifying scenes over and over again of stores burning down, you know, just Rodney King being beaten over and over and over again. It was just now looking back, that was a very problematic way of media portrayal of how they portrayed the scenes because it was really like almost brainwashing us, like us young people, as well as I'm sure mainstream community. Like that's what we saw, the same scenes, same traumatizing scenes over and over again, which really wasn't the truth, right? Like it really made the Black community look like perpetrators when they were not at the time. And you know, now there's all these talks of, you know, um, fake news, right? People love to say that, or you can't trust what you see on the media. And thank God for cell phones and social media. I think finally, you know, some truth is more truth is being shed. And we're seeing more that go on behind the scenes. But what do you think about, you know, all this racial divisiveness and the way media portrays, you know, certain racial groups, and you know, how, how how Asian Americans are completely erased from the story. Yeah, I think that this is a particularly volatile time. I mean, there's a few things in all of that, right? First, it's such a divisive time, more so than than the previous years, because that divisive divisiveness is coming directly from the federal government, right? The president himself, right? We see so much of that coming from him and then trickling down to the people who support him. So I think, you know, first and foremost, we have to acknowledge that, right? The U.S., of course, has always been a a divisive place, but right now is more explosive than ever. The other thing I think is that, you know, we say seeing is believing, but I think what's outrageous, I mean, you, you said it so perfectly. When you think about 1992 and you think about today, not much has changed in the sense that we are still seeing black men in particular being beaten and being shot by the police. And it hasn't changed right in, in the almost 30 years since, since Rodney King, as you mentioned. And so, you know, we have all these videos and I think, you know, what really came to a head with George Floyd is how many of these do we have to see? Right. How many? And, and I mean, I think it, the, the answer is, is a lot because it took a lot for this movement to get going. But, you know, I think that it was almost a, a kind of a miracle the way that everything came together, though, in uh, this past summer to see people really standing up and taking to the streets. Right. In, in numbers that had never been before. And I think part of that is, you know, the BLM movement this summer was so much led by young people, right? And so there's all of these 
debates around fake news and media and, you know, people believing things that are just absolutely not true and taking sides and making up conspiracy theories. But, you know, our young people, they know where it's at. You know, they are really organizing using social media in ways that I think have surpassed our own imaginations. That's what's so powerful about BLM, right, is that, you know, it's founders who, you know, are strong queer black women, right? Like they, they had a vision for BLM to make it decentralized, to make it queer and feminist, right? To make it a horizontal organization, meaning that there's not like, right? Like one man in charge or one organization in charge, that BLM could be something that could spread, right? As it has, could take place in different locations. And I think that plus our, the, how savvy our young people are with social media has just created this incredible momentum um, where they are just spreading the movement and sort of creating their own media while doing so, right? I mean, you know, it's so funny because I follow your daughter on Instagram and it just, it it floors me, you know? It floors me how much she knows. She's such an advocate. I, like, proud auntie. My daughter, uh, she's 13 now, and she is such an advocate of the Black community, of uh, different genders, trans, you know, pans. I didn't know what pansexual meant, honestly. She was the one who taught me what that means. And they're just so savvy, and they're just so much more aware of what goes on in their world. And they have a voice. Like, they don't, they're not the same girl that I was sitting in front of that. TV crying because I wasn't sure if my dad was going to return home. I remember feeling very helpless. I remember feeling like, okay, racism clearly exists. I knew even at the young age, something about this portrayal of these black, you know, protesters. I mean, at the time they were rioters, but the fact that they were portrayed as thugs and these like senseless, like violent criminals, even at a young age, I knew something was wrong because they were definitely targeted by their race and they were just really angry. And, and then I saw, you know, all the Korean American business owners trying to protect their businesses. The police is nowhere to be found. Even at that young age, I knew something's not right with this picture. You know, there's clearly um, major just layers of injustice happening here, but I didn't know what to do. We had no agency. You know, we had no tool or medium to change anything. But when I see the young people now, I mean, they're sharing links to Donald Trump's rally on TikTok so that it gets sold out. Did you hear about that? Where they sold out the seats, but there was no one, like not too many people showed up at the actual, you know, rally. And just the just how fast the message spreads and even the K-pop stands. They created a hashtag movement on social media that blacked out all the right, like the white supremacy type hashtags. I don't know the exact hashtag, but they created their own movement. And it's just amazing to see the power of young people. And while I'm hopeful, I'm still, I'm also heartbroken because the same thing keeps happening over and over again. And there's still people in our community that still refuses to see that it's happening. Honestly, it just really is heartbreaking. I get so angry because 
how can you not see that there is so much racism and injustice going on? And even amongst people in the Asian American community, I see a lot of people who refuse to acknowledge the reality of America today. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the support for BLM we saw over the summer, though, is such a huge step in the right direction. I, you know, BLM is not new. It's been, you know, a movement going on since I think 2012, 2013. And the demands that have been made along the way have changed, you know, because of sort of how receptive people have been, right? And, and you know, it went from, you know, things like firing the police, you know, LA police chief, to now using the words defund the police, right? And I think for activists, many of my activist friends never thought that defund the police would be a phrase that would have entered the mainstream. It's one that has existed, obviously, in activist circles for a really long time. But the fact that, you know, even though it was a small amount that the LA that LA shifted, you know, $150 million from, from its police force. It's a win, right? I mean, the police has a, have, you know, a, an excess of like $3 billion budget or something. So it's, it's a small win, but a win nonetheless. I think Seattle defunded its police by like 50%. So, I mean, I think that this is an important moment in terms of the momentum that is gaining for the defund the police um, movement. And I think people are starting to at least try to imagine what the world would look like if we had alternatives to police and guns as our only problem solving mechanism, right? Like what would happen if we sent out social workers in certain situations instead of police, right? People are starting to at least have these conversations. And so I think that makes me hopeful. In regards to Asian Americans, I think, you know, that's a really interesting and important conversation because Asians have always had such a sort of complex and contradictory place in the racial narrative in the U.S., right? It's always been dominated between, right, it's sort of the black-white binary and where do Asians fit in? And if we fit in at all, it's often in the sort of model minority sort of stereotype or myth, right, that Asians are hardworking, you know, they put their head down, they don't complain. And, you know, if anything, that Asians are often seen as, you know, more like whites than anything else. And I think that this idea of Asians is really seductive to a lot of Asians themselves, right? And so when you're saying like, even a lot of Asian Americans themselves, you know, it's frustrating because they don't support BLM, um, or they don't feel like it has anything to do with them. And I think that's a really frustrating place for us to be as Asian Americans. And I think part of that is what you were talking about, right? Like you're 1.5 generation, your husband is second generation, I'm second generation. Many of us immigrated post-1965. And that's because of the 1965 Immigration Act that allowed an influx, you know, allowed for more Asian immigration than ever before. That wasn't the purpose of the legislation, but that was the unforeseen consequence. The people who made the legislation didn't intend for Asians to come in mass quantities, but we did. And, <laughs> and so that is why we, we've seen such a rise in Asian Americans in the U.S. the last you know, 50 years. But the 1965 Immigration Act, you know, had gave preference to family reunification and to professionals. 
And so that has contributed to the model minority myth even more, right? Because many of us are the children of engineers and doctors, you know, some of whom could not be those things once they got to the U.S., but many people were these professional classes who came uh, to the U.S. So I think that that makes it so that Asian Americans have a much shorter memory in terms of the racial history of the U.S. and the you know, civil rights movement and all of these different things. But that doesn't mean that those histories aren't important to us, right? And again, that's why I talk about ethnic studies and why it's important to understand um, some of this. You know, and so a good example of that is like, where does the model minority myth even come from? And a lot of people don't actually know the answer to that, right? Most of us just assume, well, it's because Asians are good at math. And so that's why we think that, right? You know, Global in math. <laughs> I don't think, yeah, I don't see, a lot of these are stereotypes and they say like Asian women are submissive. I'm not submissive. I don't think you are either. I grew up, my parents know I'm like super like bossy in my home. I always, always like the older sister, the oldest sister. My parents never treated me any differently because I was a girl. So it's really, you know, like hard when society defines you. Like for me, for example, an Asian woman to be, you know, this, this, and this when I don't fit that mold. Right. And it's like the same thing as a double eyelid thing like I don't look like that but you guys are expecting me to be this way you can't surgically change who you are yeah you know so there's a lot of conflict and there was a lot of distrust even of myself growing up as an Asian American you know young adult I didn't know who I was and I felt like something might be wrong with me because who I was like God-given self and my traits did not reflect what society said I was. So even this model minority myth, while I understand it, and I know a lot of us understand where it comes from, I don't think a lot of us fit that mold. I know a ton of strong American women who are not submissive to their husbands, you know, who are very strong and skilled professionals and like, what can we do? How do we break that myth? Is there a way we can begin to do that? Well, I think first and foremost, it's so important to know where it comes from and why it even exists, right? So in the 1960s, mainstream you know, news magazines started printing these, this story about successful Asian Americans, Japanese Americans, Chinese Americans, and citing how Japanese Americans and Chinese Americans had high educational attainment rates, low crime rates, and their median family income was similar to that of whites, right? And really these articles were, you know, patting Asian Americans on the back and saying, look at how successful they've become in the U.S. Now, two things about, about those articles. One, the facts were not really true, right? So for instance, they cited the high median family income rates amongst Asian Americans, right? And that they were comparable to whites. The reason they were comparable to whites was because often, you know, Asian families would pack a bunch of family members into one house and then they would count all their money together. And so that family income matched up with white people. But for the white families, they're talking about one bread earner as opposed to in these Asian households, there were several. Right. So these articles were not distilling the facts in these ways. Right. But sort of like 
massaging things to create the story that they wanted to hear. So that's one thing. But then the other thing is that we have to think about, well, what, what was going on historically at that time? Well, that was the heart of the civil rights movement, the Black Power movement, the Chicano movement, Asian American movement, you know, the Red Power movement, the women's rights movement. And so essentially, those articles existed to tell other communities of color, hey, stop protesting and start just putting your head down and being complacent like Asians, right? And so it created this dynamic where Asians become the wedge, right, between other communities of color and the sort of like model, right, the model minority to say, don't agitate, but just work harder, right? And I think that is the cross that Asians have to bear today, right? Because we still see that being used against us time and again. But the disservice it does not only to other communities of color, but to ourselves is that it really erases even from our own knowledge that at that time, a lot of these activists were Asian American, right? There was a full-blown Asian American movement at that time that was committed to eradicating racism, inequality, right? And, and you know, doing even community things like bringing food to different community members, eradicating drug addiction in our own communities. Um, and there was a really powerful third world liberation front, right? A group of student activists that um, went on strike at UC Berkeley and San Francisco State for five months. And they're the reason that we have ethnic studies today, right? And so a lot of the leaders of the, these movements were Asian American, and yet that has become really erased from our own memory, you know, this legacy of activism that we have. And even with the beginning of the BLM movement, though it was founded by Black women, a lot of their close supporters were left Korean Americans and Asian Americans, right? But these are not the stories that get told about Asian Americans or to Asian Americans because of this pervasive idea that you know, Asians are apolitical um, and complacent. But history has shown time and again that that's absolutely not true. And yet, again, because of the way that the media has sort of put us in this box, right, this very useful political box, those things are hard even for Asian Americans themselves to understand or to realize or to mobilize around. Wow, thank you so much for educating us about the history and just the background story of these different movements, because I personally didn't know. I did take ethnic studies in college, but you know, over time, through motherhood and just through life, you forget all the dates. You really forget where we came from, where our history begins in America. So that's such valuable, like insightful knowledge. So thank you for sharing that. So like, for me, what what I've been pondering about a lot recently is can we do as mothers for the generation of Asian Americans? Like my children are 100% full Asian, yet they're not, you know, they're 100% American. They don't speak the language. I try really hard to teach them Korean, but they're not really at that age to really understand the value of that. You know, my daughter, my teenage daughter, you know, she's a, she's an advocate of, you know, minorities and the LGBTQ community, but she lacks awareness of this hyphenated identity. And sometimes it worries me because 
at least for my generation, and my husband tells me the story too, he grew up thinking he was 100% American, even though, you know, you have this Asian face and then you start, you know, experiencing racism from your own friends, your friends, parents, teachers, you know, sometimes your employers, and then you really kind of become like, you feel betrayed by the culture. And then you go to Korea and bam, there's like all these people that look like you, right? They all look like you. You're like, wow, this is what, you know, Korea is all about, you know, for, for me, for my people in my community. And then you realize you're different from them too. You know, like you're, you look Korean, you look like them, but we're different. Like this, this identity of Asian American, like, like this hyphenated where we're both Asian, part Asian and part American. And you don't really know where that begins, or where that ends. I think this identity is so hard to navigate. What can we do to best teach our children or guide our children to navigate their complex, but very, for me, it's a very rich identity that embodies not one, but two cultures. Do you have any tips, not only as a professor, but also as a mom for the next generation? I think our kids are growing up in such an interesting time because they're, they have so much more access than we do in their daily lives to be transnational. You know, do you remember when we used to watch dramas and you have to like go to the video store and you would get like, 10 VHS cassettes at once and put them in like a, a, bring them home in a bag and you would watch them one at a time, you know, and today our kids are growing up in this moment where, you know, BTS releases a video and the next day it has a hundred million plus views, you know, they can go online and access so much. So I think in that way, it's an amazing time in terms of their, their ability to access transnationally, like their culture. You know, so just in that sense, I think it's a, it's a whole different world. Before we continue, can you define transnationalism for the listeners? Sure. Transnationalism just is really just about the, the crossing between two countries, right? That transnationally, our kids can access things between here and Korea, for example, at the, you know, snap of their fingertips, right? Whereas for us, that kind of movement between nations took so much more labor if it was even accessible at all, right? Like maybe we could catch a Korean TV show on one channel on cable TV growing up. um, And now they have access to all of it all the time on the internet. And so I think in that way, they have so much more access to who they are than we ever did. And yet, as you said, right, like, that's not where they are. And that's part of who they are, right? They might be Korean, but they're Korean American. So they might have K-pop or they might have dramas, but it doesn't mean that they have grown up in Korea or necessarily know everything about Korean culture. And that's why I think it's so important for them to understand the dynamics of what's going on in the U.S., right? And I think that, you know, again, kids these days have so much of a better hold on that as well. You know, just knowing that they don't need to be white to be considered American, right? That they don't need to be white to have an opinion about the way the world works in the U.S., right? They're sort of leading the way in terms of making changes in terms of who gets to be seen and who has a place and who 
gets to represent us. But I think these questions are always hard, you know, like, you know, I, I have an answer, you know, like, as you said, as a professor, and then as a mom, my kids are only three and five. And so every day, I'm just doing my best, right? You know, so for instance, they're both in Korean school. And I know I have this like tiny window of time where their brain will soak all of this in. And then not, you know, not only will their brains not want to do that anymore, they will just not want to do it anymore, right? They'll be like, I'm not going to Hangarakyo anymore. I'm not going to Korean school. And so it's just a struggle for me every day uh, to, to not want to waste any of the precious time that I have to instill any of it in them. And then as a mom, you just never know if any of it's even soaking in, right? So yeah, that's hard. That's, I think that's what's hard as a mom, especially as a working mom, you know, moms where we have, we spend most of our time thinking about other things, right, for our work. So my daughter was in Korean school and she, it just, of course, she didn't like it. It got boring after a while. So we stopped and I wanted to be the one to teach her like once a week. But frankly, now with them home every single day, I don't have time for anything extra. Every, every day's survival. I just barely have time to give them food, make sure they're not starving, make sure they're eating their fruits and vegetables, making sure they're getting you know decent amount of sleep. I mean, everything else, I just can't even think about doing. And like you said, I understand that these children, they're, they're like, their brains are like sponges. You know, they're at that age where they're soaking everything up. And I wish there was more space and time for us to do that. Like if our young kids were in school, for example, then we have time for work and then they go to school. And then once they come back, you know, we can step away from our work and then, you know, help them with Korean school or whatever it is that we would like to help them with. But now everything's just mixed together. And I feel a lot of guilt that I'm missing that window of opportunity. And I also feel a lot of frustration that I'm not able to do it all, which is very understandable. But just being, you know, a mom, you want to give your children the best, especially with recent events, um, with a lot of like racism, you know, playing out in our everyday communities. And as a mom, I've been very worried about my children's future, what that's going to look like. Not only, you know, in terms of are they going to learn the language? Are they going to learn Korean? Or are they going to learn Chinese? Are they going to get the, you know, the, their cultural education in during this pandemic and thereafter? What is that going to look like? And beyond that, you know, what do I tell my Asian children about what's happening right now in politics? And I think it's easy you know, it would be easier to look away, but, you know, we're bombarded with all the information on social media. I don't watch a lot of news, but I still hear everything. When there's something, you know, big that happens, I end up hearing about it one way or another. I'm sure everybody does. And it's really hard to balance everything. You know, there's just too much information, too much going on, lack of boundaries, too much resources, yet lack of resources right now, it's a, it's complete chaos. And I wonder, you know, I don't think there's a solution, like a clear answer to this, but I just want to ask you like how you're managing it, you know, right now, given the very unique circumstance that we're in. One of my best friends said to me recently, I was complaining about, I mean, just exactly what you said, just 
balancing everything and, and how hard everything was. And she said, you know, your oldest is going into kindergarten. And I know it seems like a big deal because when my oldest went into kindergarten, it felt like a really big deal. But she said, you know, it's not that big of a deal. It's just kindergarten, you know? And, and there was something about the way she said it that was so freeing to me because it was like, I was complaining to her basically, like I have to write this book. I have to be a professor. I have to be a mom. And now I have to be a kindergarten teacher. Right. And so, you know, I obviously none of us have any training being, you know, any of these things. And I have no idea how to teach kindergarten. And it was just really, really freeing to hear another woman, another mom who I respect, you know, immensely to just say, like, basically, it can't all be perfect. And some of it has to, we have to let some of it go. And you, we really have to sort of think about, well, what, what can we let go? Right. And that's not going to be true for everyone. Some has, some people have older kids, like we're all in different situations, but it was a moment for me to take that advice as I can't be everything. There is a saying that women are supposed to work like they have no kids and then be a mom, like they have no job. Right. And now on top of that, we're supposed to also like be teachers and every other thing that's happened in pandemic. And it's just not possible. So, you know, we don't, we can't be everything to our kids and we, not everything can sort of be perfect. Right. Or in other words, kindergarten is not that big of a deal. Right. Everyone needs to have a friend come in and say blank is not that big of a deal. Just, you know, it's all going to be. Okay. Yeah. You know, I too try to remind myself, like, it's okay. This is not a big deal if you look at the big like the large overarching you know the big scheme of things but the everyday I think the problem right now is that we're just going through so much without a break without an escape without a vacation without childcare, without you know that you know the three four hours we get while our kids are in school it's been a lot yeah no I mean I agree and I you know and that's not to say that her saying that immediately made it better or that or that it's even going to change the way I handle it, right? I'm, I still have every intention of being present for all of his kindergarten Zooms. But, you know, at the very least, I think as women, we have to just remind each other every day, you know, that, that we're doing our best and that whatever we're stressing out about, that there's a bigger picture. Because just to hear someone else say that, while it didn't change the dynamic, made things so much better. I think the other thing you asked me about was how do we talk to our kids about race? And I think that I have been thinking a lot about that with the uprisings that happened over the summer. And, you know, a lot of my close black friends reminded me, right? Like black people don't have the luxury of thinking about when to talk to their kids about race. You know, their whole lives are always shaped by their race in terms of their safety or how people treat them. And they're always first reminded of that. And so I I really think about that when I think about talking to my kids. I think that the impulse might be for many people to shield kids from the topic of race, particularly today because it's such a divisive and violent topic. But I, you know, they, they're, they already know they've already picked it up. And if we don't guide them, I think, what they know will just replicate what society has just recycled over and over again. And so, 
you know, I take every opportunity I can to talk to my kids about race and it doesn't have to be super intense or deep, but they will bring it up. You know, can you give us some examples on how you talk to your children about race in a very simple way to, you know, kindergartners, for example? I mean, kids are so amazing, right? They're so honest and they're so, they see the world so clearly. The other day we're having dinner and I forget what the topic was, but somebody mentioned something about black people. And my son asked, well, who are black people? And so I started naming some of his friends at school who are black. And he said to me, but they're not black, they're brown, right? Being very literal about what that is. And so that was just a great opportunity to talk about why we call people what we call people, who fall in those categories, right? And it might be, you might think, well, am I teaching them those categories? But they already know They've already learned at school, right, that these categories exist. And I think it's a good opportunity to talk it through with your kids to say, well, there's a lot of value that are placed on these different categories. But in our house, we want to think of everyone as, right, like valued equally. Um, And to just put it out there that not, you know, everybody is valued equally all the time in society, right, and that that's something to be mindful of. But, I, but it's not easy to talk, I think, about these things. So I, I think one of the best things to do with young kids is just to get storybooks about, you know, different figures in history. There's so many great children's storybooks that feature Asian Americans or, or, you know, Black Americans, et cetera, and just read it to them at bedtime. And they have so many amazing questions that, you know, you'll, you'll even find you can't answer. But, you know, our great conversation starters for the next time. I love that idea. And I love this idea of speaking in terms of value that there are different value placed on these different colors. It shouldn't be that way, but that's how it is for some people. But that's not what how it is in this household. You know, I think it all just begins in the family, you know, in these everyday dialogue. It's not a big lecture you know you don't just sit them down and say hey let's talk about race you know it doesn't it's it's it should really be embedded in our everyday lives just normalizing diversity and just normalizing equality and just respecting the differences and like you said earlier I think our children I'm very hopeful that they will be more transnational and they will have more resources and just more education than us, than we did in our generation to just be more aware and just be more tolerant and just be more loving to each other. I mean, I, I already see it, you know, like I said, when I see young people's Instagrams and the amount of knowledge that they have, that they're putting forth, the ways in which K-pop stands have leveraged their fandoms, right. To, to black out, you know, for example, the Dallas police department's a uh, webpage, the way that young people, right, bought out the Trump rally. I mean, the political mobilization that you see in young people today is, I think, beyond anything that we could have imagined. And so I think it's a good, it's a good moment for us to sort of learn from them. And to me, I feel like our young people, they already know what is right. You know, like, it doesn't really require any teaching to know what is wrong and what is right. They know that we have to treat each other with kindness and respect and tolerance and love. 
But when grown folks don't do things that way, they're just less fearful to speak out. I think it's more of like our generation, the parents who are more aware of what's accepted, you know, what's not. And this model minority myth, for example, like I kind of played into that. I try to fit into that role because that's what defines me. And I'm kind of like now as a mom, unpacking all of that, unlearning, you know, what was taught by, you know, education or their lack of, and, you know, what I've been taught indirectly by different institutions. And I'm still doing that work myself. So um, I am learning a lot from the younger generation, just this fearlessness, this boldness, like this ability to say anything they want to say. And as much as you know, sometimes I find myself, for example, my daughter, like, are you sure you want to be talking about this when she's very outspoken about rape, for example, she'll have these, you know, different memes about, you know, just different ideas and different advocating for rape victims. And sometimes I feel uncomfortable seeing my own daughter be so outspoken about this. Yet, I have to ask myself, like, why, what makes me feel uncomfortable about this? This is perfectly normal to discuss these very important topics because this is everywhere, you know? So as a mom, I'm learning and unlearning a lot. Yeah, I think that really nicely loops back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of how do we sort of balance or like instill in our children, right? Like who they are being Korean American or Asian American. And I think as second generation or 1.5 generation, our parents sacrificed so much to come here that, you know, it really was drilled in us to study hard and, you know, do your best. And that, that felt like a responsibility that we, you know, something that we owed to our parents. And I think a lot of Asian Americans can really um, relate to that. But when I'm raising my kids, you know, it's my hope that rather than instilling or drilling in them that their duty to me is to work hard and be a doctor or be whatever successful thing, that they can actually think about that duty as, right, speaking up for others, bringing social justice into the world, speaking for those that don't have a voice, right, that that is actually how we become more full of who we are, right? and and we don't have to be wholly, you know, American or wholly Korean, but actually that fulfillment comes from being able to further social justice, you know, wherever we are and however we can. And I think it's also important because we need to talk to our kids about race, especially Asian Americans, because we like to fantasize that we're not a part of that conversation, right? Us meaning Asian Americans. And I think when I was talking about why it's so important to talk to your kids about race, I don't just mean that it's important to talk to them about the way black people are treated, right? Or racism, like historical racism in the US. But you know, this affects us as well, because the other side of the model minority is yellow peril, right? Meaning all the sort of anti-Asian violence that Asians have experienced in this country for hundreds of years, right? that maybe we can't remember all of those incidents dating back hundreds of years, but we don't need to because we know that with the, you know, with the explosion of COVID, right, there's been a huge spike in anti-Asian violence. And so, you know, racism very much affects our communities as well. And so it really is our duty to talk to our kids about race and racism so that they can be advocates for, you know, people who don't have a voice. And I love that your daughter is such a good, example of that. I'm so proud of her. 
Thank you. And I love that you're doing this. I don't know if the listeners know, but I always dreamed of being a professor because I wanted to, like, it was my purpose to bring voice to the voiceless, the marginalized. And I think I'm doing that in a different way. But when I see you, I have so much respect for you, not only as a woman, but just as a mom, because you're such a loving mom. Like you're not the typical like professor who, and I'm not saying that professors are, you know, stereotypically not like maternal. I would think that professors are just so focused in their career that there's, there's really no room and time to enjoy and love motherhood. But when I see you, you just love being a mom first and foremost. And I see that joy and you're, I think one of few people who really enjoyed your pregnancy. And I, and I can tell you truly, truly loved being pregnant and breastfeeding. And just when I see you doing that, it really gives me a lot of um, hope, even for my own children, for my own daughters, that they can have achieved so much professionally and still enjoy motherhood because that's something that I'm currently trying to do. Like my journey's not over yet, but that's my goal, you know, that we can find joy in both. And you're the perfect example of that, like a mom, a woman who's achieved both. And I'm sure it's not easy, but you do it very well, very gracefully and with a lot of fun and just joy. So thank you so much for just being you and spending time with us and just for all your valuable insight. I learned so much from you today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It means so much that you just said all of those things. I mean, I don't know who needs to hear it, but I, you know, loving being a mom is compatible with every other thing in your life, you know, and I know that those things are hard to juggle, but Um, we can sort of find the joy in it together, you know, and I think that your podcast and mommy diary, your Instagram, the blog, all of it helps us to do that, right? It really does help us to find joy in being a mom amidst everything else. And I'm one of the few people who see you behind the scenes and all the things you juggle and work so hard to do. I've watched you're one of the few people who see me drunk at Christmas parties. (laughs) Because I don't show, I don't, I don't, I don't get drunk on my Instagram story or any of my videos. But you have seen me drunk, and, and it's fun. It's always fun to release. You know, we need that. And I'm not a very social person. Um, I'm okay just being home, but I love spending time with you and the family because I think I can truly be myself, and I can talk to you about work too. You fill me in both ways, so I'm so thankful for that. Well, I've loved watching you on this journey. I literally have been with you since you were like, I don't know what to do. I have all these unfulfilled career dreams to now this whole brand that you've created. I can't, I can't even express how proud I am of you, but how proud the whole family is of you. And you're reaching so many people more than, you know, in any other way. Thank you so much. I feel the same way about you. Keep teaching those classes at NYU and just spreading the joy of being Asian American. And I can't wait to read your book. And I thank you for just sharing your valuable insight, just all the history that I needed to be reminded of. It was just so important. I think we really needed this conversation at this time. Thank you so much for having me. Bye. Bye. You are my sunlight
Thanks so much for listening to Mommy Diary, the podcast. If you can relate to any of my stories, my hope is that you leave this episode feeling a little less alone and a lot more inspired. For more parenting and lifestyle stories, head over to my blog, mommy-diary.com, or join me on Instagram at mommydiary. If you're loving this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and leave a five star review. I love connecting with you, so send me a DM and let me know what you'd like to hear next. Talk to you next week.